Ta. Women's Success China is powered by the Seneca Network. We are biweekly podcasts focused on capturing the lives of women in and from Greater China at the top of their professional game. I'm your host Juliana Batista. Many thanks to the entire team at SubChina, including co-producer Kaiser Kuo, Jason McRonald for ending, and Jamie Lui for marketing. So I've actually been getting a lot of feedback from you all, and I feel like you've been coming out of the woodwork. So I just actually wanted to share a comment that was left by Karen one one seven that Tafrita sheds light on the great women of our time without making it purely a gender cause. It talks about terrific people who all happen to be women. Honestly, Karen, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think that we're really just trying to provide a platform if. Historically, kind of underrepresented voices on the the China sphere and the China watching space, and just telling their stories. So I I really appreciate you getting at the core of what what we're trying to do. So that came from a review. And speaking of reviews, we have a really exciting opportunity that we want to share with you all. So for the first fifty listeners that leave a review on iTunes, they'll be entered for a drawing of a free one-year membership to the China Institute. So this one-year individual membership includes complimentary admission to select programs, including arts and culture, business, fashion, food, film, unlimited complimentary admission to China Institute's gallery. A twenty-five percent off discount on all gallery publications, a discount at Jiangnan Chinese Cuisine Restaurant with the valid membership card, a discount on admission for fee-based programs, and a discount on tuition for classes at the School of Chinese Studies. There is a lot included in that, and we will be giving that out to one of our listeners that leaves a review, and we'll be doing a drawing once we hit those fifty reviews. So you're hearing me right. Get listening to the episode. Click write a review in the Apple Podcast app, and be sure to share your email in the review so we can track you down if you win the drawing. On to our regularly scheduled programming. This week we are joined by Shenzhen Liao, head of school at the China Institute. What I really found with her was this deep and profound passion for educating that's conveyed with such intent. Shenzhen sees the value in bilingual education and is seeped in the elements and details and stories that support her vision. This is all going to be put to the test in fall 2020 with the opening of a new preschool program. Let's listen in. I am ecstatic to share with you all our guest today. We have Shenzhen Liao, who is the head of school for the China Institute. And actually, Shenzhen, a couple weeks ago, we got breakfast, kind of to just start talking about what we might want to cover in this episode, learn a little bit more about each other, and we chatted about so many different things that was such a tease for the episode. I wanted us to stop and just get going here. I am so excited to share with everyone what you have to say and having everybody get to know you a bit more. Thank you, Juliana. I'm happy to be here with you. And so, I think I'd like to start with a highlights reel of your career. In the United States, it's actually pretty straightforward. I was a Chinese language teacher in Long Island for two years, and after that, starting in 2008, I joined China Institute until now. So、um, I have moved a few different positions at China Institute, from managing its Confucius Institute for professional development for Chinese language teachers, well to the head of the school. That we have many things ongoing for students and teachers and cultural programs as well. But well, it's it's really sort of like well this this long time with China Institute being the big part of my career. Um, but back in China, I, actually, I was a journalist for a while, and I worked for a international project that's supporting、uh, disadvantaged children to、uh, finish the compulsory education、uh, in remote provinces.、Um, so it's a, a different experience here and there. You know, tell me more about your time. What were your biggest learnings and takeaways from that experience? Well, I remember the first job, the full-time job I got was a journalist,、uh, covering educational stories, in-depth stories in different parts of China. I really had the opportunity to go into different places 
and interviewing people and figuring out things on the ground from transportation to find the right person to speak with. Sometimes it's really far in certain villages. So I think the big takeaway is, well, yes, the education that I had at uh, Beijing Normal University, that's right after I graduated from Beijing Normal University, uh, it was important. It gave me the, the, the kind of perspectives uh, to enter those uh, real life situations, but also the on the spot skills and how to, how to resolve the problems right away would be the real important things that to get things going there. How did you make that transition from China to the States? Did you always know that you wanted to move? Um, it's a little bit of the story that it's at the time that, well, when a lot of friends around me are looking at um, an education in the United States post-graduate, I wasn't really thinking about it at the very beginning. And then it started to trigger that kind of curiosity. After seven years in Beijing Normal University, what the world would look like outside of Beijing, outside of China, that started to sink. And then while following the usual path of the GRE and the TOEFL exams, I was very interested in uh, anthropology. Uh, I was um, uh, eventually got into anthropology and education at Teachers College, Columbia, Columbia University, not necessarily in the education schooling field, but really look into the cross-cultural sectors in both U.S. and China. Mm -hmm. And some of your first teaching experiences in the U.S. were in Long Island, right? And was anything about that shocking to you? You know, what was your first impression of teaching in the States? So you're right. Well, the, um, the Long Island was the first full-time teaching experience in the United States, and especially in the K-12 school. It's a wonderful place. It's a progressive uh, liberal arts school. Uh, Chinese program has been there for a long time. Um, so the school has a pretty good culture in terms of uh, embracing different cultures. Um, and the students and the families are very open well, to, uh, to learn Chinese language and culture. So I find myself uh, to be in a relatively open and welcoming community there, um, but also while dealing with 6th and 7th graders um, for the first time was a big surprise to me. And they're difficult anywhere. <laughs> I remember, I still remember the first class I had. I, I was pretty confident to walk into the classroom because I had teaching experience with Columbia and also well, at different age of students, but in relatively smaller groups, either one-on-one -on -one or a few students um, that I have to uh, uh, like work with at the same time. But well, 15 sixth graders uh, in the same room, and for the first day, a new teacher entering that space. Um, I, at the end of the, uh, the class, I was like, this was a disaster. I wasn't sure whether I could be a successful teacher in the classroom. And that was the first impression I, I took away from that first day. How did you pick yourself up from that first day? Looking back, there are two parts. Um, one, I had a uh, really supportive department chair. Uh, she was teaching French and Spanish at the school, and she was really um, sharing her experience. And also she was trying to communicate with the students, well, this is your teacher who really here for you to learn Chinese. And for me also, it's my first day with, the, um, with this age group, and I just feel I cannot be just taken down at the first day. And thinking, well, how I can, um, I can really trigger their interest, I can work with them as well we get to know each other at a personal level. And I was thinking about every day, um, well, I could get this part right. And maybe next day I can get to the, the other part right. So it really is a process. Uh, I can still, I cannot say that, well, I will do everything right as a language teacher. Because after two years, I came back to New York City. I joined China Institute. So I'm not currently a classroom teacher teaching language now. Two years of 
full time teaching experience. Well, it, 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 I cannot even say that I'm a veteran teacher. Do you think that you've always had an affinity towards management and building programs rather than the teaching itself? I mean, even though it seems you have so much respect for the teachers in the programs that you have now, I'm curious if you have affinity towards something else. Management skills, I feel it's there is a natural connection as a teacher in the classroom because you really have to manage a lot of components well, with the students, with other colleagues, well, how you connect with the schools and bring that into the, the current position that I'm at, that working with the teachers that were here at China Institute and uh, also in schools as well, we are doing professional development programs. And so what type of advice do you have for teachers that are coming from China to predominantly English or American school systems? You have to win the respect of your students. I feel there is a deeply rooted culture in China that teachers are respected. And coming from that tradition, and especially, well, from um, Beijing Normal University, that's educating teachers in China. Well, there is a long tradition that teachers are, in general, well-respected in China. And parents would say to, your, um, to, to the kids, well, respect your teacher just directly, and that goes um, by default. Uh, here, there is a respect there, but it's really you have to, either with your personality, with your knowledge, with what you can bring to the classroom at that moment that win your students. And once that trust and respect is built, it's a much easier process uh, and working relationship with your students in the classroom. And also I feel, well, from especially for teachers uh, growing up in a different culture in China, while the how to really know the American culture in the school is something that also that the teachers would need to work on. How to, um, the pedagogy part, that was the, um, the classrooms are pretty student-centered. You really need to come up with a lot of activities and also um, following many standards here that to make it successful for the uh, students, as well as connected with the school system itself. That's all taking a lot of time um, to grow into that. We'll build on this later, but what do you think are some of the most important elements of the American and Chinese education pedagogy? Like, what is the most valuable about the way that it's done in the States, and what's most valuable about the way it's done in China? I think, well, here in the United States, there's a lot of emphasis on the individualism and also the creativity, the innovation part, and how to make the knowledge relevant to the life of the student. There has to be a relevant connection built so that the students can see this is valuable, this is meaningful to my life. For Chinese language teachers, this is not an easy job, especially when students walking out of your classroom. It's primarily an English world. So to make that relevance is the key. Why I walk into the classroom, today we're going to focus on learning weather. Um, why the list of the schedules of your subject that you are able to speak in Chinese is important in this classroom. Well, as a, as a teacher here, that's really something the teachers have to make it meaningful. And students then will be motivated to learn and then make their creativity and everything on top of that. And it could be a really fun and inspiring um, process. Well, in China, the innovation and the creativity are important. And actually, and especially since the educational reform started in especially 1990s until now, uh, started to transfer from a test center 
examination-centered educational system to more of allowing that creativity and innovation and individualism coming into the learning process. It's happening in China now, but still, Gaokao or the, uh, the, the college entrance exam is still pretty much the core of the final goal for students, for teachers, for parents to, to look at and to measure the quality and the final goal that they want to achieve in the Chinese educational system. Um, and I also want to say that um, in Chinese educational tradition, to actually learn the content, you have to know the substance. There is a huge emphasis on that. Mm. You have to, um, well, that goes back to even learning the Chinese uh, characters. You have to recite them. And there is a there's a the techniques, skills, and time spent um, memorizing a lot of stuff from the characters to the poems to the paragraphs. Well, of course, well, there is a big part in the American education students still have to do that. But compared to the weight and the amount that the students have to spend in terms of memorizing the substance of the content across the subject areas. I think, well, Chinese education has uh, a much more weight into that area. It has its pros and cons, I would say, because the more you know, the more likely you could build upon with what you know to create something new. But on the other hand, well, it, could, it may limit your imagination and, well, how to think out of the box and then it comes to the critical thinking, either culture or tradition, that's pretty predominant and emphasized in the United States. While in China, even though it's now being mentioned in the school system, but not as prominent because, well, it's still from generations, well, that hasn't been uh, much of a practice in China. So you've been at the China Institute for bit more than eight years now, I think. When you were first hired, what did they bring you on to do? And how has your role evolved over time since you were first hired? You know, when they first brought you on, were you expected to bridge um, the divide between these two systems and these two educations and create this harmony between, you know, U.S. and Chinese education? So I was brought to China Institute to manage the professional development program through its Confucius Institute. Um, it's precisely training Chinese language teachers how to be successful in the K-12 schools here. Um, so we did a lot of, we meaning um, I work with uh, master teachers, experts, educational uh, consultants to bring that um, expertise to bridge uh, the different educational traditions um, that Chinese language teachers, many of them grown up in China, they had their educational experience in China, which as well we talked about, well, has different cultures, different styles, different emphasis. And when they are in front of the classroom of American students here, well, how to get into that pedagogy and also culture to be successful. So I primarily while trying to, especially working with many um, Chinese language teachers to identify what are the areas that could help them. Well, is it classroom management? That well, you really have to have a control of the classroom um, so that you can actually teach. Is it the design of the curriculum or the unit plans that you really have to make sense to your students so that it's fun, it has all the substance that's relevant, and well, you can actually design the activities and the, um, the, the interactions with the students so that it can be all in this um, inspiring um, learning experience for the students. Um, or is it about finding the materials? Because one thing here is, well, the teachers are always, always looking for the materials 
especially authentic materials that people in China actually will look and see and to be able to access here for the students. Oftentimes, well, that would build these kind of relevancy and also well, students would see, oh, this is not something you just create for us in this classroom. This is actually something in real life. So in the end, well, it's, it's all of this. At different times, well, we focus on different content um, to bring that understanding and practice up to speed. And also it's evolving. Like now we are looking to the leadership or Chinese language teachers. I'm still doing part of that as well. My position starting from that now overseeing uh, all different parts of China Institute's educational program. We have a school since 1933. It's the oldest uh, school for continuing education uh, in the United States, in fact, uh, for the general public to learn in depth about Chinese language and culture. And I, I remember reading the story that the part of the history in 1944, it's through the mayor LaGuardia that China Institute's school got the charter to be a continuing education institution. Um, so it really gives us this history and, um, and credibility while to, to focus on teaching Chinese language and culture. And now we start from the youngest, the toddlers, uh, we're building a preschool, to different age groups while they come to China Institute after school over the weekend uh, to continue in their um, Chinese language education, and for adults to learn both language, literature, poetry, brush painting, and many forms of Chinese culture. And we just started our music program uh, at China Institute too. Um, so I'm working very closely with my team members uh, to continuing all these programs we started uh, years ago, and also constantly adding new programs um, to to the uh, to the classes that we offer. And now that you bring this up, can you tell listeners and tell us more about building the China Institute Preschool Program? From everything I know, it's set to start in fall 2020. What's it like building a program from the ground up, and can you use the preschool as an example? Yeah, sure. It's our latest extension. We are very excited about it. It's a full immersion for Mandarin Chinese for our youngest generation starting from two and a half years old to um, five years old. So we are building um, a small a boutique class, but while really uh, trying to work with the community very closely to build the curriculum and the full immersion experience. Um, we're aiming for opening next fall, but now it's really how to, while picturing you have your kids here and learning art, science, math, everything in Mandarin Chinese, so they get the benefit of developing all different skills, whether it's physical movement, it's social emotional, it's language development, and on top of that, it's the Chinese language integration. That's the strength of China Institute that we will build into the curriculum. And we are looking at the students would not only enjoy a standard um, regular preschool curriculum, but also the Chinese cultural tradition and the wisdom that will bridge in the East and the, the West that will, we will integrate into the preschool curriculum. I wish I was going to preschool like this. I didn't even know that preschools had such thoughtful curriculum. I mean, the intention and the thought that goes into this is actually impressive. How did you go from zero, zero to one, so to speak? I think that's what I really want to understand. You know, it's day one. Okay, we have this directive. We're going to build a preschool. You know, where do you start when thinking about curriculum? For China Institute, for us, um, even though preschool is a new extension, we've been working with kids since early 1990s. 
So for us, even though it's a new brand new branch for us,、uh, the kind of materials, experience, curriculum we have been accumulating. Uh, since early 1990s, that's before Mandarin Chinese became so popular in town,、um, and we were the first. So until now, we still we had the summer program, we had the after school program. So different levels of language engagement and what kind of activities that could go into both the language and the culture and the comprehensive development of a.、Uh, Child at that age, well, this is the preschool is the embodiment of this comprehensive components coming together. So that's also I feel the confidence for many years,、uh, working with many te- teachers in generations. Well, the, these are the experience accumulated, and also it's something exciting. Ten、uh, years ago, we probably would not think about a preschool. That would go from eight thirty in the morning to twelve o'clock for half day, and then eight thirty to three thirty for full day program. In part, it's because learning Mandarin Chinese has really becoming popular in the United States and particularly in New York City,、uh, given the awareness of the the rise of China,、uh, the importance of U.S.-China relations for the next century. Um, and also the understanding of the Chinese civilization for thousands of years that learning Mandarin Chinese could open door to. So this is something that, as the schools, the universities, and the general public are getting more understanding of the importance of learning Mandarin Chinese, we feel early childhood education. This is the time that we could do it. And also with China Institute's own development, we moved downtown from Upper East Side after 60 years there, and now it's a much bigger space. It's a very dynamic community downtown, and also we are building more space out, and we can have dedicated space for our preschool that would run through the entire day. You know, I'd be remiss not to ask this. Given the current trade and cultural tensions, do you think that parents are taking too big of a risk by putting their child in a bilingual program with both Mandarin and English? You know, just because we don't know where the relationship between the two countries will go. Parents always think ahead for their children. That's wonderful, and especially my my understanding of parents in New York in our community. It's 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 very sort of much thinking ahead of time. It's important to keep that in mind, but I have to emphasize there are many benefits of learning Mandarin Chinese and what teach your kids being bilingual in that、um, precisely in that regard. One is for children being bilingual is not just for the future career choice. Or even it's because while、well, U.S. China having a good relationship or not. Fundamentally, it gives the cognitive advantage to any child while、well, to be bilingual. While、well, in terms of while、well, you build a foundation so that the child or、well, the mind, the brain can be developed、uh, more in more areas, especially social,、uh, emotional development, the executive function of the brain, and also even researchers have shown that it even helps. Of the learning of the native language, because you get to really get into the nuances of comparing different languages, so that the child would develop a deeper understanding of the first language. So, in that regard, in general, being bilingual is beneficial for kids. And Mandarin Chinese, because it's a tonal language, it has different sound system phonetically, and also it's a pictographic. Language meaning the writing system is based on these pictographic characters that gives the brain a completely different trigger compared to Roman languages. So I would argue that while、well, on top of while、well, giving the any bilingual、uh, education would give to children in general, 
learning Mandarin Chinese because of the uh, of its unique qualities that would even give the child more benefit in terms of brain development, cognitive development. And also, well, it really learning Mandarin Chinese, it's opened the door to a culture that has run thousands of years. And it gives the child a gift that can really see the world through a different perspective. And it's the entire different value system that, well, it would enrich the child's life um, for, for the long run. So it's not so instantly related to the U.S.-China relations. A good example would be um, uh, Mr. James Hemowitz, the president of China Institute. Well, he started learning Chinese when he was little in, in New York, and that that was the peak time of Cold War. So at that time, you prob- probably nobody would think that, well, economy-wise, well, U.S. and China would be so closely connected with each other. But, well, years later, here he is. Well, he's heading China Institute after a successful um, career in China for decades. Um, so this is uh, not where to to learn a different language, especially Mandarin, um, for the preschoolers. It's not just looking at the next year, the next five years. It really is a marathon. And I think, well, for what we, China Institute, can give to the children and the families in New York, well, this is, this is also the opportunity for the parents to think about what resources are out there that, well, the children can be exposed to what they can have access to in the future. I mean, I asked this question to get your point of view. In an article that actually talks about your work, it cites that 30 years ago, Chinese was characterized along with Arabic, Swahili, and Icelandic as the, quote, less commonly taught languages, quote, in the U.S. And now Chinese Mandarin is the second most commonly spoken non-English language in the U.S. after Spanish. So I think people are on the same page as you, and I just really want to get your opinion. As you see, it's becoming more and more prevalent. So when you think about the preschool that's being launched, who's applying for this? We welcome everyone. I think, well, people who are open-minded and really see the benefit of a bilingual education and precisely the kind of um, advantages that the culturally speaking, linguistically speaking, Mandarin Chinese could offer. Uh, uniquely offer well, to the children would be interested in this kind of um, preschool. And also, and well, I want to add, New York City is full of parents like that, being cosmopolitan, being the place in the world that's known for the diversity of the cultures and the people that it attracts. Uh, it is the, 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 the base if I, I can say that, well, for people to embrace different language and culture. And well, to speak to that point, well, China Institute has been in New York City since 1926. It's an example of how a city like this and the people living here like this would uh, have an institute like China Institute to be around. And also in recent years, while there are more awareness of how important Chinese culture is, speaking to the economic and the, the development of China in general in the world. So that has been helpful in terms of changing the view of the importance of Chinese language, because then, while in general, it can be connected with the opportunities that it opens in the future. And you hear, whether in school, on the media, and everywhere that, well, you hear people talking about learning Chinese language and how understanding the culture is important in many different aspects of life. And also growing number of Chinese population, Chinese descent, 
population in the United States and in New York would make that possible because learning language has all the practical benefits and also for people with the cultural connection, it's a way of connecting with your home culture, your heritage. That I think it's, it's um, priceless in terms of, well, not only in thinking about, well, in the future, how useful this would be, but it's useful fundamentally in a way that it speaks to who I am in the world. Uh, I think, well, children from either Chinese uh, family or a blend family or coming from a Chinese descent generations in the United States would at some point will want to build that connection there is a parent well, who sent her child, five-year-old, well, to our uh, summer program. Um, she shared with us, uh, I think it's very touching. Uh, she said, well, she herself studied Chinese in Sunday schools here. Uh, she could speak Chinese, well, she understand Chinese, but she, in her, um, she's a Chinese descent. Um, she has never really feel that, well, Chinese culture being part of her. But when her son is growing up, she really hoping that, well, the culture itself can be part of who her son would think he is in the world as an individual that's connected with both cultures. So I think, well, there are families um, raising kids, especially cross-culturally, would find that building that connection compelling. And of course, well, there are families who are very internationally minded. They may travel, come to New York from a completely different culture. Uh, we had a family from Brazil coming to New York and joining our summer program and really just want to expose the, the, the child well, to different cultures. Wow. You said offhand earlier that there's an application process for preschool. If you were to write a practical guide for how to prepare your family for a preschool application, what advice do you have? I know. Well, it's, it's, uh, sometimes it feels it's too much. Even starting from preschool, you have to go through this application process. But parents, don't worry. Uh, it's not for the child to fill out the application. Well, typically for preschools in New York City, while well, you go to the info sessions, you get to know the preschool, and then you decide whether you want to um, submit an application. Some schools may even want the application first before you go to uh, the school visit. Um, but the application itself is really a process to understand the families, the dynamics, the kind of education the families want their children to have, uh, the kind of experience that valued by the family to assess whether this is the right match. Uh, so it's really a mutual process because the, what's wonderful about um, here uh, in New York is uh, there are a variety of preschools and different styles, whether you value learning a different culture and language like Mandarin, come to us on top of everything that we can offer, uh, or it's a different style, it's Montessori why it's experiential learning. There are many different styles that well, parents can choose from. So for parents, it really is the process to get to know the schools. And also for the schools, for example, we would also are looking for working with parents very closely to understand their goals and expectations, to understand well, how the kind of rituals or habits that's happening at the home that well, we can work with the home to make it a positive and exciting and educational experience for the child. So this is the application process that well, we start with a form that parents would fill out and we invite the parents here to have a meeting so that well, we can really have a conversation to dive in depth well, to get the process going. And oftentimes, well, there is a um, play group that the child will be brought to the school and then we will really see how the dynamics that would work in a school environment uh, in order to 
have these um, different components work out to find the best match. That seems less daunting and very helpful. One of the things that is really intriguing to me about the work that you do is that you really are bridging the divide. And I genuinely think that you are building a new hybrid pedagogy that toes the line between the U.S. and the Chinese styles of teaching. I was just hoping that you could actually give us an anecdote or two more about how you're bridging the divide through the work that you do. I was actually having this discussion with a parent and teacher the other day. Uh, We are talking about, well, there are, for example, stories that we grown up and get familiar with in China. There are idiomatic expressions. For example, uh, you probably know this, Cao Chong. Cao Chong is this uh, young child of a general in China. And well, he's, he's like seven years old, but he's very smart. And well, one day there's an elephant, Xiang, brought to, um, brought to his home. And well, nobody could figure out how, how, how heavy the, the, the elephant is. And then he figures out, well, to have a boat, get the elephant on it, and then have the pieces of bricks or stones. And then by weighing the stones, well, you can figure out the, the, the weight of the elephant. So this is the idiomatic expression that, well, young children starting from elementary school would get familiar with. And I just spent a good three minutes to explain in English. Um, but it's also a story of, um, of math. Because, well, then how to, in, to intrigue the children to think creatively? Well, this is a big thing that, well, if you want to know how the, the weight of it, well, there are different elements, well, problem solving, well, get to the math part of it, get to know the measurements, well, for the weight and everything. So in itself, it's a good math and problem solving unit while it's completely in a Chinese cultural context. We integrate that into the curriculum that actually will help to bridge the divide seeing, oh, it's not that different. It's just, well, the concept, well, is universal, but it can be expressed in different cultures in different ways. And while children are learning this, well, they probably would also remember, hopefully, uh, the that idiomatic expression. And another example is, well, the, uh, we started a music program. Uh, we are teaching uh, kids pipa. Uh, and music would be a, a tremendously important part of our preschool or any programs, well, uh, or especially the public educational programs that well, we are engaging with general public at different ages. So we had this program with a pipa uh, musician who were talking about the history of pipa. Now this, it's also called Chinese lute. It has um, four strings and it's a pear-shaped and it has uh, this beautiful, very expressive sound that's popular since Tang Dynasty in China. That was the 7th, 8th century. But really, when we look into the origin of pipa, it was introduced to China, well, from Central Asia, and then has followed a long path that will become now a quintessential Chinese musical instrument. And there are other examples, well, in other parts of the world, uh, whether it's the, uh, the Persian barbet or the Japanese biwa. Uh, they are all coming from that origin with a similar sort of shape and the, the music sounds similar, but also with regional and cultural differences. In Chinese culture, pipa was through all these centuries well, becoming so embedded and rooted in Chinese culture. So when you look at Chinese stories from Han Dynasty or from Tang Dynasty, and even today, well, it's, it's, it's part of the culture very much. So my point is, well, if we really look into the long history of how the culture has developed and how through different means and at different time, 
the Chinese culture actually integrate other cultures into it. And this process has never stopped. So when we are looking at the divide, we are probably looking or more focusing on the differences between different cultures, while we also could look into the other side that while the connection, the cultural exchanges have never stopped. And we can really even looking at this um, quintessential Chinese loot and we can find a very non-Chinese origin. I know you don't teach anymore, but I could listen to you speak in a classroom all day. (laughs) So I'm really excited about the work that you do for the China Institute, but what do you think is next for you? Well, that's a good question. Because, well, I um, have been moving in different positions at China Institute, What's great is every few years, it's a new project, and there's always new elements in it. We've spent quite some time talking about the preschool. It's built from past experience, but it's also something new. So there's this kind of excitement. Uh, For me personally, this is something immediately in front of me that I want to build on. And I want to devote my passion and commit to that. Uh, but also there are so many new elements. Uh, we um, look into the kind of stories and books that we can build well, through this, this preschool uh, building process. And it's just like tremendously uh, deep content that we, we can look at. Both the uh, the Chinese stories that's published in China, that's running very deeply in Chinese culture and how to tell that to the kids and the, um, the, the, the latest uh, generations and also their families here, as well as the classic American stories that in our school we can tell those stories in Mandarin. So that what the students hear, well, they really get the, um, the, the, the benefit of both cultures, but were embedded in the, in the um, Mandarin Chinese environment. So in itself, I, I could see in the next few years, I could just devote myself in it. Um, but other than that, I feel I'm like right in the middle of the cross-cultural path myself. Um, I would like to think of myself as a uh, note taker, a cultural note taker that constantly experience well, both um, the, the, the Chinese part of me and also the new cultural elements that I would encounter here. Um, new York to me, uh, it really is my second home. I spent a good more than a decade here um, sometimes it feels more like a home to me than uh, when I go back to China because it has developed so fast. You know, something I like to ask of every guest that comes on the show is, you know, what's one piece of advice that someone has given you in the past that you've actually found yourself giving to someone else recently? Well, there is one quote that I came across. It's from a book that's uh, written, I think, in 1980s. It's called The Read Aloud Handbook. It's about really read aloud stories to children at different ages by Jim Trillis. It's, it's very short. It says, sooner is not better. The way I think of it is, well, it takes time. And we really need patience, especially in the fast-paced world. Uh, whether we are looking at um, building a career or to enjoy life, or for me, most immediately while looking at the preschool and the new programs we are building, and while talking to parents who oftentimes, well, or, or in general, people have the kind of anxiety that, well, I want to get this, I want to get this fast. I want to see my kids being able to read Chinese right away or can do this wonderful AI thing, coding, everything. Uh, That's all coming together. Um, But really thinking about, well, sooner is not better. 
sometimes while the 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 people who can who can do things most the fa- fastest may not be the one that would be su- successful in the end. Uh, it really is a marathon. Uh, I I mean I mean the education and cultural um, field um, for my entire life, and for that I feel really it, it it you really have to dive into and sink into the environment while take time and to be able to understand and also to be able to um, artic- express and articulate yourself. I think that's a really great note to end on. You you really do have an approach to, to education and the programs that you create that's needed, especially in a mixed cultural context. I also just really love the, the sheer amount of stories that you told over our conversation. I think that teaching really at the end of the day is storytelling and you do it so well. So thank you so much for being so gracious with your time and coming on the show and, and sharing your story. Well, thank you very much. I'm happy to share um, and also congratulations to your program. <laughs> And that's it for today. Make sure to write a review on Apple Podcasts and leave your email in the comment. We're going to be giving away a free one-year membership to the China Institute that you don't want to miss out on. We're also getting more active on Twitter, as you've hopefully seen, providing content that really elevates and supports what you're listening to here. Our Twitter handle is at ta for ta And of course, we still regularly check our email at ta.for.ta.china at gmail.com. Ta for Ta, Women, Success, China is a proud member of the Seneca Network. Many thanks again to Kaiser Kuo for co-producing, Jason McRonald for editing, and Jamie Lue for marketing. Until next time, I'm Juliana Batista, and this is Ta for Ta.